We're starting a new series. The series we're going to be doing is, I've titled, The God I Don't Understand. And what we're going to be focusing on is different images of God in the Old Testament. So I'm going to just intro the topic tonight and let you kind of talk to me about it. A little bit later, I'm going to have you write down on cards maybe some questions you have. So be thinking about what questions you might have about something you encountered as you were going through the Old Testament, because I'd like your feedback. Unlike other series, I don't think we can cover every single question. We've tried in other series to do that, but the Old Testament's kind of a broad topic, and there are a lot of things that you might find difficult. So let me start with just an introduction of this topic for you, and as always, feel free to jump in, but I'm going to kick us off with just some ideas of what we're doing. Here's kind of the things we're going to cover in the kind of way I see it. Tonight, we'll just do an intro and get your feedback. Next week, I hope to begin talking about some of those goofier laws that you might find in the Old Testament that maybe you wonder, do they still apply to us today? Are they still applicable? We might see a few of them at the end tonight to remind you of what some of them are in case you haven't been looking there lately and don't know what I'm talking about. There's also a section I think we're going to do on some of the more crude laws that Jesus seemed to correct. And I put all of those words probably in quote. They appear crude and Jesus appeared to correct them. So we're going to kind of spend a little bit of time asking, why does he even do that? I mean, if the Old Testament is what it is and it's God's word, why is he seeming to correct it? And I, again, under the word seeming is one of the questions a lot of people have. We're going to talk about patriarchy. Uh, you might have heard it differently, like male dominance. All right. So in case you're not familiar with the word, uh, we're going to talk about the role of women, maybe in the Old Testament, uh, polygamy. Uh, concubinage, which is the act of, you know, the, the, the use of concubines. I think all those things are a subject that people think like, yeah, it seems like the Old Testament's a little out of touch with our 21st century sensibilities. And I know when they wrote the Old Testament, they were just thinking about you in the 21st century. They were hoping to please you. So we're going to look and see, like, does that even apply? Do we just excuse it as cultural? Do we rip it out of the Bible? Do we ignore it? What do we do with some of those things? Uh, people have asked about that. Uh, slavery and human trafficking might be an issue that comes up as we look at the Old Testament. And finally, probably most on point with where most of us go, what about some of those stories about massacres and ethnic cleansing? How does that relate? And if you look at this outline, what I'm trying to do is wade into the topic as opposed to just dive right in at the very bottom of the screen. I'm trying to see if there's a way we can build up some tools and some rules that might help us to understand this topic a little bit better. So it sounds kind of weighty. It is weighty. We've waited a long time to do this topic, even though it's been on the radar for a while, because you know, we wanted to make sure we had a little bit of time to do it. And uh, hopefully, this is going to be the time. So why even do this series? It's a good question. It's always a good question for us to start any series with thinking about the amount of time it's going to take to research and read these kinds of books and present them here. Uh, you might even be thinking tonight, in just the 45 minutes you might be sitting here, why would I invest any of my time doing that? And I think it's always a good question, because if our time could be better used, let's do it. Here's my pitch on why I think we should do this series. I think we all have questions in this area. I think if we we're honest with ourselves, many of us, as we read through the Old Testament, get to a point where we think, huh, that's a little bit strange. I'm not sure what to make of that. I think what we tend to do, though, is we either get unsatisfactory answers from people, 
And I'm not guaranteeing that the answers we give in here will be that much better. I pray that the Spirit will help us to do that through deliberation. But I'm not going to guarantee that our answers will be perfect. But I will say this. Most of us, we do get unsatisfactory answers. Otherwise, right now, we'd be, this is an easy topic. I already know the answer. Then the next thing we do is just simply ignore it. We just ignore the issues. And the reason I think that doesn't work is because someone in your life at some point is going to really press on the issue. And if you don't believe me, read the little booklet in the back that we put that's called Deconversion Testimonies of Former Christians. Because we collect these sometimes when I do some research online of Christians who've just said, I've had it with Christianity and here's my issues. And when you go through them, you read over and over and over some of the issues we tend to ignore and think, I don't need to worry about this. I just need to praise God and love him and just have faith and everything's going to be okay. And I believe all that. But when we let these issues lie dormant, sometimes somebody presses on them and it really causes a crisis at some point, probably at the worst point, probably at the point we least need it. And we're not helpful to that person who's raising the issue, and it's certainly not helpful to us. Instead of us having some sort of response to help lift them closer to a relationship with Christ, we end up both going down. So I think that's probably not a good place to stay of ignoring it. I do want to tell you the goal is not to solve for God like we're doing some academic proof. That's not possible, and that's not even my goal. I'm not trying to sit here and say if we can come up with a geometric proof that will establish God, we'll all be good for the rest of our life. That's not the goal. I think the actual goal is to ask deep questions about the character of God, which is really what troubles us sometimes when we see difficult passages, because we're trying to reconcile who God is. So like every series we do, the series really is about something else. It's not really about difficulties we encounter in the Old Testament. It's about who do we see God to be? Who is God? What is his character? How do I know his character? And why does it seem sometimes that his character differs, at least from the way I'm reading this? So I want us to learn about his character in these pages and come away with a deeper appreciation for who God is. That's the goal of our series. But I think it's really important that we not skip the other ones. We do need to know a little bit about what the resolution might be in our mind to some of these things. Just a couple caveats of what we're not going to do. We're not going to solve every Old Testament difficulty. The good news is you're not in a seminary class that will last three years. I don't even know if they could do it then. Also, what we're not going to do is eliminate the need for faith. Or expect a faith that God has to justify himself to our standard. In other words, what we're not going to do is sit in this room and say, unless you can explain this to me, Lord, in a way that makes perfect sense to me, I refuse to believe in you. I think that eliminates, one, who God is, second, who we are, and any kind of mystery or faith in the relationship between us and the eternal. So we're not going to go that far. And I don't think we're going to do this, which I don't think is going to happen, but I've heard it done before, so I'd like to just say we're not going to do this. Some people like to solve the problems in the Old Testament by just saying, well, that's just what they thought. So when it says in there, and God said, go over there and kill every man, woman, and child, the answer they come up with is, well, they probably just wanted to do that, and then they just decided that that's what God was saying, and then they wrote that, and God says, because then everybody would go do it. Here's the reason I'm not going to do that. We're not here to critique how scripture came to be. We already did that in a long, long series. We're not going to do that again. And the second reason is, I think it's harder to do it our way. 
If you could just write off every Bible difficulty by saying, well, that's just kind of what they thought. It wasn't really God saying that. They just thought that God said that. Then we would be done with the series. Then we would just close right now and go, that's really what it is. Let's close and go home. I think it's harder to say, let's take it at face value, which I think is the proper approach and I think is the faith posture, but I also think makes us actually do the work and not just write it off and say no. So that's kind of what we're going to do. The place I want to start is also to tell you, I don't think any of this is new. We're not the first people to struggle with this, and that happens to us sometimes. We think sometimes, well, we know so much now. You know, we're so smart as a society that we can go back. We're so elevated. We're so much better. We're so much smarter. We have so many more ethics and values that we can now look back and think, tisk, 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 those Old Testament people in the way that they thought and their ethics. And that's not really true at all. You go back to the, to the second century. I put up here the example of Martian of Sinon. And Martian is probably one of the first people in the church to ever get excommunicated and to be declared a heretic. One of the first, probably one of the first substantial heresies to arise in the early church. And the reason he was labeled a heretic was he did the same thing we're going to do. He looks at the Old Testament and he thinks there is no way that this guy is the same guy that shows up in the New Testament. So the only way that I can reconcile these two things is just to say that was a different God. The God we see in the Old Testament, the God we call Yahweh, he was just some sort of inferior deity. We really didn't know who God was until Jesus comes and then he reveals the true God. So it was that they were mistaken and they were actually following kind of an inferior wrong God. And we could probably see, yeah, that's probably not Orthodox Christianity and he was excommunicated for that kind of heresy. But that was the way he came to it. I don't think he woke up one day and said, I'd like to be a heretic. I think he struggled with this and said, that's the only way I can reconcile it. And before we kind of make a cartoon character out of Martian, one of the things we should decide is, are we liable to be called heretics too? Because what's the difference when we just kind of ignore the issues or don't view God? Or some of us secretly probably do think, I don't know how you reconcile them. And we don't. So I'm not saying we're all heretics, but it's easy to point at somebody who came up with his formulation for how you solve this and say, oh yeah, that's wrong. But what's our formulation? Right now, as we sit here before we do this series, how many of us have a good formulation? Some of us probably don't have, if I asked you straight out, like, so how do you reconcile the God that we find in the Old Testament with the things that we find in the New Testament? I would venture to say, without having to go through that exercise, that at least a third of us would probably be stumped trying to even understand it. Some of us might go, I don't know, what's the problem? What's going on? Like, why is there even an issue? But I think some of us would, would start to have to sit down and really think of something through, and it's very difficult. So before we criticize too much, we should at least know that we ourselves sometimes just ignore the situation. Think, I don't resolve it at all. Why? Because I just don't deal with it. Okay? Let's start with this. Anyone know Richard Dawkins? Heard of Richard Dawkins? one of the leading atheists. He's written The God Delusion. So he's read a lot of the Old Testament, and this is his formulation of what he believes about God. He says this. This is his view. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it. I want to highlight just this as a way of learning how to study the difficulties we find, because the first thing we have to do is figure out what's a difficulty. I'm going to highlight the word jealous. Does it strike you as weird that God is described as jealous? 
You're shaking your head. Why not? Because he created us, and I feel like he has the right to be before attention's being drawn away from him, the creator, onto something else. Okay. Right? The problem with the word for logical is it seems kind of petty and very human. Like it doesn't fit in with the idea of a supernatural being that you would have. Not that there's anything wrong with God having human emotions, but that might be a problem to hang up for some people. But it sounds like such a, like how powerful can he be if he experiences something so human as jealousy? Shouldn't he transcend that in some way? Shouldn't he be better than jealousy? Exactly. Like, okay. Abby? Yeah, it's like it implies that like he's inferior or has like fear. Like a boyfriend is jealous of another guy being with his girl because he's afraid that their relationship's not good enough. He doesn't feel like, like he, there's not, there's like a lack of trust or like very relatably like, there's like something missing in him which would make him jealous. And it's like a deficient almost emotion. Okay, it's a defi I like that, it's a deficient emotion, right? Monique? I actually don't have a problem with the word jealous. Like, I don't look at it as inferior. My issue when I come across I am a jealous God is that there are also verses that say love is not jealous, but God is loving, and that kind of stuff is sort of what... And I know it's probably used a different way or a different meaning, but that's always what's tripped me up about that word, not because I view it as inferior. Like, it makes sense to me that he would be jealous. I just... When love is not jealous, but he wants us to love him in that way that... It's confusing. Okay, Jill. I've always looked at the jealousy through kind of the filter of his righteousness. So nothing God can do would be a sin. Nothing can be skewed by an emotion that would seem to us to be kind of lowly. So it's kind of a weird tension to hold it into, but like I see that love is not jealous as an instruction to us because we experience jealousy as those things, as the fear and as something that's deficient in us, so we need to seek it, but God does not possess those characteristics, so he cannot, like he cannot be skewed by that, and he's experiencing that through all of the filter of his righteousness. Okay, Carissa? I think maybe it has something to do with, uh, in the Old Testament, when God's talking about his covenant people and how he wants them to be jealous and what that looks like. Okay. Anyone else? Last comment? Yeah? It kind of just occurred to me, too, that, like, when we are jealous over things, it's almost like that flaw. It's like you think you possess something, like it's yours, and maybe there is sin in that, like kind of like what Jill was saying, because we don't possess anything. But everything does belong to God, and so we belong to Him. And when we love something else above Him, whatever it may be, another God, another whatever's in our life, like that kind of makes sense to me, because He actually does possess all Okay, let me raise this for a moment. One way to look at a word like jealous is to think of a word like anger. Like we're not supposed to be angry, and yet at times we see that God is angry. Jesus exhibits anger. In fact, we're told in some places to be slow to anger, not, not to be angry at all. So there may be an understanding we need to peel away of what is the difference, and some people would say there is sinful anger and there is righteous anger where you're angry in defense of another. I'm not going to go into a whole theology of anger, but I do want to tell you that maybe, just maybe, there's multiple ways to understand jealousy. Now let me tell you why it might be important. Forget Richard Dawkins for a moment. I recently bought a Bible for somebody who is checking out Christianity, and they just wanted to read through the Bible. As they were reading through the Bible, they would come with questions every once in a while, and one of the first questions they had is about jealousy. 
probably because they encountered very early on in the scriptures some texts about jealousy. For example, in Exodus 34, 14, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Or Deuteronomy 4, 23 to 25, or just that section says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Ezekiel 36, 6, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I speak in my jealous wrath because you have suffered the scorn of the nations. There's different ways that jealousy is used there in each of those. But here's the question. It was very much what was already stated. And I think Ray started it off with, they came and said, I don't understand this God. He seems so weak. To have such a petty emotion is like jealousy. I mean, if this guy's supposed to be the creator of the universe, the Lord of everything, and he's jealous of what? Of who? Of some people that they don't worship him? And suddenly he's jealous of them? Yes. I feel like jealous is a word that Christians have kind of taken over and redefined sometimes the way they want to, especially with like the, the song, He is Jealous for me. Like Christians are just like reinterpreting you. <laughs> Christians, I think, are tending to sort of redefine what it means instead of dealing with the word jealous as it means in the context of our culture and how normal non-Christian people would define the word jealous. Yes, we're going to come back to this worship song that just flashed on the screen. Heather, do you have a comment? Yeah, I was just going to say like, when I read the word God's jealous and those verses even refer to these people um, committing adultery with other gods. And I feel like as a married man, if a man was talking to your wife, you wouldn't necessarily be jealous. You're kind of confident in that. But if she was sleeping with him, you would for sure be jealous of that. You know, like we entered this covenant and we said that we were going to be the only partners in this covenant. And now you're going outside of that covenant. So let me ask you the question. If you're talking about, let's say, most of you have been referring to 1 Corinthians 13, love is not jealous, right? But you're saying, for example, if I found out that my wife was sleeping with another person and I came in here and it was clear that I was jealous, you're saying that that's a proper emotion to have. In relation to her, I would say that that's something you need to bring up with her. Probably in relation to our covenant, right, as well. Like if I don't have that emotion, then I'm probably... Yeah, there's probably something wrong with my love for her. Uh, there's probably also something wrong with the covenant, clearly, at that point. But I wouldn't be able to act in the way that I'm supposed to. Um, to either correct the covenant, find reconciliation, bring back some sort of thing. Because absent that emotion, something is amiss in the relationship. And that may be the way you explain it. And, and I think in the same way, when we say that we have a relationship with God, I mean, I know it's been used a lot of times in the Christian context, that you are in like a marriage with God and like with Jesus, whatever, like, you know, bride head, whatever. Uh, and I think in that regard, he has a right to be jealous of you when your attention is blatantly going towards something else and not on him. In both the Old and the New Testament, the imagery of God acting in that way is present in both places. It's one of the consistent images that we're given. Let me go back here for a moment. This verse from Ezekiel probably should have some context. When it says, the Lord says, I speak in my jealous wrath because you have suffered the scorn of the nations. What he's saying is, because the nations have scorned you and because I love you, I am going to rise up against them. They are going to pay for what they've done to you. There is a protective kind of jealousy for them. 
But again, think about it from the perspective of somebody who isn't doused with Christian worship songs and doused with all these illusions that we have, who's just coming to this brand new. And they're looking at me thinking, this God just is so weak that he would have such a petty emotion. I think what's going on there is he hasn't had this conversation or he hasn't had the years that we've had to accept jealousy and to understand it in its rightful way. That brings us to a couple things that are important. It means that when someone like Richard Dawkins comes up with this statement, all they've done is scoured the Old Testament for the most blatant thing they can say without understanding it. But I want to be careful before we point fingers at other people, we do the same thing sometimes. What I'm trying to point out to you is that in this series, we're going to come to things that are difficult at face value that we need to spend a little bit of time to understand. Most of us are not troubled by jealousy because we understand its context. And when we hear that God is a jealous God, or if you were singing this song on a Sunday morning and it begins with, he is jealous for me, none of you are like, ew. Most of you are like swooning because this is a song written for women. I'm convinced of it, you know? Love's like a hurt. Ah, right? We would just all be singing along, right? Beautiful romantic. This guy knows how to write songs, and, right? None of us are creeped out. None of us are angry. Any more than when you read this line, by the way, like bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. Nobody's like, oh, he's so oppressive. <laughs> All of us are like, oh, I'm like a tree. <laughs> so what I'm trying to point out is when you see the rest of the things that maybe you're not familiar with. Maybe you're comfortable with jealousy, but you're not as familiar with the other things. That we need to take a moment. That's why this series is important. Because I think you understand jealousy. Clearly, Dawkins does not. Or he doesn't want to. Listen to the rest of his quote, by the way. I only gave you the first part. Here's the rest of it. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully. Yeah, and your butt's big too. I mean, is there anything he left out? What other name could you think of, you know? And he has a big butt as a god, you know? There's nothing else like a childhood bully could throw other names than to just string them all together. Now, I would say that if you do a cursory examination of the Old Testament, you could make this list just the way you could about jealousy. You could at face value look at every one of these things and say, oh yeah, he did this. I mean, if you called Richard Dawkins and go, justify the philicidals. Anyone know what that is? Killing of children. All right, anyone want to know what any of those mean? He just used a lot of big words, you know? It's okay, I had to look up a couple of them. <laughs> the, the pestilential or pestilential means that one who sends pestilences <laughs> upon people, you know? He could have just said pestilent sending. So you could at face value, say, oh yeah, I've got, a, I've got a verse from scripture for every one of those things. That's really cheap. 
but is it any cheaper than the efforts we make when we come across difficult passages? Some leading atheists, this is their comment on Richard Dawkins. Michael Ruse, Dr. Michael Ruse, who's one of pretty well-known atheist philosophers says, the God delusion, which is Dawkins' book, makes me embarrassed to be an atheist. Terry Eagleton, who has been a professor at Oxford, he's been a professor at the University of Manchester, one of the probably the foremost linguists in the English language, says Dawkins and Hitchens, he's talking about Christopher Hitchens, invariably come up with vulgar caricatures of religious faith that would make a first-year theology student wince. The more they detest religion, the more ill-informed their, their criticisms of it tend to be. I'm not here to talk about Dawkins or Hitchens. What I am here to point out is sometimes our knowledge goes no deeper than theirs. My pitch to you today is to stick through this so that your knowledge of it could go a little deeper. So that maybe if John Mark McMillan writes another song and he uses one of those other verses, we would be swooning just the same way and it wouldn't bother us, you know? <laughs> All right. Maybe that would be over-delivering if I could do that in this series. We'll call John Mark and see what he can come up with in the meantime, you know? So... I'm going to read you one thing in closing. This is a mock letter that was written to Dr. Laura Schlesinger, who used to give advice on the radio. And the reason was Dr. Laura always seemed to cite to the Old Testament. At one point, she was orthodox in her Judaism and found that all the answers were there, and she stuck to a lot of them. So this letter was kind of posted on the internet as an open letter question to her about some issues. But I think it will kind of give us a preview of where we're going next week. So just to close off, listen to this. Dear Dr. Laura, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I have learned a great deal from your show and try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. When someone tries to defend the homosexual lifestyle, for example, I simply remind them that Leviticus 18.22 clearly states it's an abomination. End of debate. I do need some specific advice, however, regarding some of the other laws and how to follow them. When I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odor for the Lord, as in Leviticus 1.9. The problem is my neighbors. They claim the odor is not pleasing to them. Should I smite them? I would like to sell my daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? I know that I'm allowed no contact with a woman during her menstrual cycle, Leviticus 15, 19 through 24. The problem is, how do I tell? I've tried asking, but most women take offense. Leviticus 25, 44 states that I may indeed possess slaves, both male and female, provided they are purchased from neighboring nations. A friend of mine claims that this applies to Mexicans, but not Canadians. Can you clarify? Why can't I own a Canadian? Yes. <laughs> I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath, Exodus 35, 2. That clearly states he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself? A friend of mine feels that even though eating shellfish is an abomination, Leviticus 11:10, it is a lesser abomination than homosexuality. I don't agree. Can you settle this? Leviticus 21.20 states that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit that I wear reading glasses. 
does my vision have to be 2020 or is there some wiggle room here? Most of my male friends get their hair trimmed, including the hair around their temples, even though this is expressly forbidden by Leviticus 19.27. How should they die? I know from Leviticus 11.6-8 that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean, but can I still play football if I wear gloves? <laughs> my uncle has a farm. He violates Leviticus 19.19 by planting two different crops in the same field as does his wife by wearing garments made of two different kinds of thread, cotton and polyester. He also tends to curse and blaspheme a lot. Is it really necessary that we go to all the trouble of getting the whole town to stone them, as in Leviticus 24, 10 through 16? Couldn't we just burn them to death at a private family affair like we do with people who sleep with their in-laws, Leviticus 20:14? I know I've studied these things extensively. I'm confident you can help me. Thank you again for reminding us that God's word is eternal and unchanging. Your devoted fan, Jim. What do you think? You don't have to tell me. Come back next week and we'll tell you where do those things fit in the grand scheme of things. Yes, this is clearly tongue-in-cheek and it's clearly meant to be sarcastic. But there's something in there where all of us are like, yeah, what do we do with all those verse citations? Do we just say, hey, that's just the old covenant, I don't follow him anymore? What do we do with the fact that we seem to point to some things and hold on to them and not others? Anybody wearing a cotton polyester blend at all tonight? Just, we'll get the stoning going a little later. That's it. It's just an intro. Next week, we'll really get diving in and hear more of your comments. Let's pray and close up. Lord God, my, the first words on my lips tonight as I pray is humor us. Put up with us as we take on these subjects. People have done so irreverently so many times. But Lord, I don't know if that's any worse than those of us who've just ignored them. You have something to teach us in your scriptures, otherwise you would not have preserved them for us. They would not be, as the New Testament declares, examples of how we're supposed to live out our faith. So Lord, all of the scriptures, even in the things that we don't understand, your wisdom is preserved for us. Help us, Lord, to do a little bit of the difficult task of uncovering that wisdom. Be patient with us. Most importantly, Lord, unleash your Holy Spirit in the commentary that's going to come in this room, in the wrestling that we have in one another, even in these questions that were asked tonight. Lord, may truth be produced because your spirit is here and active in your body as we deliberate. Pray this in your name. Amen.